Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, you'll want to hear the next 30 minutes. We have an esteemed panel of fine minds, a refresher for anyone that wanted to know where marketing science, behavioural economics, consumer psychology, where it's all at. We've got four people that are going to discuss and update us on, on where things are at, both in theory and in practice, on the ground in brands. So welcome, Julie Hutchinson, again, GM Marketing at Volvo. Welcome back, Julie. Sadeep Gohill, who is KPMG's partner in customer brand and marketing. Sadeep, long-time agency and now gone to the consulting, gone to the wild side, we could say. Uh, John Broom, CEO of the AANA, and John Bradshaw, principal at Brand Traction. The trigger for this, of course, was that John Bradshaw wrote essentially a paper last late last year that summarised everything that's going on in marketing and si- marketing science and media and advertising, and it essentially takes maybe thirty to forty minutes if you're um, if you're a slow reader like I am, and suddenly you're across all the major themes that are going on from lesbian A and the long and short of it to consumer psychology, behavioural economics, and Byron Sharp. So, John Bradshaw, let's just start with where we think the world of behavioural economics is that. Uh, I've seen lots of presentations on it. There's a lot of work being done sort of in, out and about, but where is it at in marketing and how are brands using it? Give us the update there. Yeah, and I think of all of the things we're going to chat about this morning, this is probably the one that's kind of got the least traction uh, in the market. So we, we might start right at the top. We might start with Danny Kahneman, who hopefully people know won a Nobel Prize for his work on how humans make choices and decisions. And right in the middle of that uh, of that work is this notion that 95% of the choices we make are made in an intuitive, instinctive, short-cutted kind of fashion. And only 5% of the time are we engaging the cerebral cortex and having a kind of rational features, benefits, value equation conversation um, with ourselves. And it flies in the face of how marketing has traditionally built things like benefit ladders and communications structures and well how every industry operates the it's it's, a, it's completely counter isn't it in terms of the emotional and the intuitive stuff versus the rational across every industry yeah and, and it does get misinterpreted as well as that this is 95 percent of decisions being made on emotions that's not what Kahneman says like we don't make decisions on emotions emotions are the feedback mechanism that tell us whether we made a good or a bad decision it's post hoc it's about finding shortcuts and kind of easy ways of making complicated choices. And it's because co- commercially as a society, we've evolved massively, but human actual evolution is very slow. So we're effectively still people with brains that live in caves trying to make decisions about whether the tiger's going to come in the cave or not. Um, and that brain is the brain that's deciding whether I want a Ford, a Fiat, or a Land Rover, yeah. So, and no surprise when you think about it like that. Right in the front of their philosophy that understands that the way we choose is not usually a rational, considered purchase. Sadiq, do you agree with what uh, Mr. Bradshaw's saying here? I absolutely agree with what John's saying. However, I think that even though everything John says is intuitively correct... When you try to apply it in the real world, I think you find yourself going, hang on, do I want to be that guy that turns around and goes, no, no, everything is too complicated and it's much simpler than that and let's just focus on this one thing. 
And I think we've built marketing structures and frameworks and understandings which fly so far in the face of what John's talking about that that's the, that's the challenge for us as marketers is how do you unravel things that we intuitively go, yes, that's right, but then rationally then go, but what do I do about it? How do you work that up the food chain to appear credible, I guess, and strategic to your, to your senior management as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, there's one thing working it up the food chain. I think ideally you'd like to see it being worked down the food chain um, and actually senior people taking a lead and going, you know what, this makes sense. Let's make it work for our business or for the challenges that we're facing. Julie, how pervasive is behavioural economics in your understanding? Do you, are you across it and how deep are you across it? And then what do you say to the counterplay that's, that's intuitive versus rational? From my perspective, I totally agree that people don't make rational choices, but we exist in these environments, these business environments, which reward rational, logical behaviour. So when you're presenting, when you're putting forward an idea, if you're bonkers, as Rory Sutherland sort of suggests in his work, you know, to be a bit bonkers is dangerous because you may not have a job uh, next week or you'll give it a crack and, and you won't be rewarded. So those that do behave rationally and are able to present really, you know, logical approaches to marketing or business get rewarded. And it's, it's hard to sort of live on the edge a little bit. Have you got any uh, examples or scenarios where you've tried to um, be a little bit bonkers and it's either backfired or worked for you either way? Well, I think we were fortunate last year, the Living Seawall, when we launched that in Sydney Harbour, I got presented the idea and I was thinking, this is slightly off centre. What we did was we partnered with the uh, Sydney Institute of Marine Science and we developed these tiles that mimic what you know, a, a mangrove would do in in Sydney Harbour where we have um, seawalls and it helps to filter the water, helps, you know, organisms grow where they otherwise can't grow on seawalls because they're flat structures. Um, and it was something really different, as I said, that seemed to captivate not just locally, it sort of gained real global traction, but it was off-centre. And we kind of went, let's have, let's have a go and, and let's have a crack. But it doesn't always work out. You know, there's plenty of examples where something on paper or in theory that gets presented to you from an agency, you go, let's give it a go. And then to actually implement it is is tough um, and, and it doesn't work so well. And I've had that experience as well. Sadeep, have you seen any examples or in, in your travels either uh, at KPMG or before? Are you allowed to be bonkers at KPMG? Very bonkers. Um, not even wearing a tie today. No, I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I think John's right. When you look at Let's look at some of the greatest brands in the world ad and, and communications that we really admire. If you look at, say, Nike communications where there isn't a product feature, there isn't a kind of a linear narrative sometimes, um, but and, and half the time you just kind of go, I don't really know what that was about, but I felt really good as a reason of, as a kind of result of engaging in that piece of communication. I think there are some brands that do it really well um, but I think, unfortunately, they're kind of few and far between. I think um, I don't see a huge amount of brands in our country, in Australia in particular, that, that are kind of leading the, leading this kind of thinking or this kind of behaviour, unfortunately. And what about people? John, John Broom, what about marketers? Are they, I mean, Julie's clearly across it. Is she re- representative of, of the marketing community, you think, or is she very advanced? I think she's very advanced. <laughs> um, look, I, I, I think... Part of the answer is um, if marketers go back to insight and invest time and energy in the insight and actually link an insight to a potential change in behavior and keep it simple, then you're most probably going to get yourself onto, onto the right road. 
But I think there's not a lot of that going on in a, in a sophisticated way. Not enough time is being invested at the very beginning of the process. So that, you know, if the, if the focus and the desire from the business is on, give me results, give me results that, you know, I can measure, right? You tend to default to kind of like stuff that you can measure, which might not actually be getting a behavior change in the first place. So invest time up front. You raised a great point before, Sadeep, about you know some of this, some of these these concepts we're covering in in uh, in John's paper, where great minds think alike, uh, is that younger and emerging uh, talent one may not even be aware of some of this stuff, and two don't care. Um, should they? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I've worked uh, with John a few years ago, and I think. A lot of what we discussed um, back in those days was John was like, look, I didn't come up with this stuff. This stuff was written before I was even born. But the reality of it is that some of these ideas are as old as the day is long and therefore they come across as being old-fashioned and stuff of textbooks and, and all that kind of stuff. And so as a result, people look at it and go, yes, but that's not relevant for today. Um, we've evolved and we've changed the way because look, I can measure how many people clicked on this thing and how many, how long they stayed on this page and so on and so forth. But the reality of it is that even uh, so, the, but the reality of it is all of that stuff happens because something else has happened beforehand, and it's uh, kind of a little bit like what John's saying there that, that you need to spend time up front to understand why things happen. Um, and so, therefore, I, I, I think that it's incredibly important that young people try and get a sense of you know, some old things that they could learn as well. And there's just this bit where I constantly see this debate about, like, you know, what does marketing do and, like, how do we define I can't believe we're still having a how do we define marketing conversation. But it seems to happen. But for me, it's really simple. They are the behavior change department. Their job is to own the consumer and to shape the behaviors of the consumer in the way that benefits the organization. Nobody else is going to do it. Nobody, nobody else is going to do that. And it gives you a distinct but distinctly commercial role and it connects you to the P&L. Therefore, why wouldn't you start with everything we know about consumer behavior and how consumer decisions are made? To John's point about insight, a bunch of incredibly clever people over dozens and dozens of years have tried to unpick how our brain makes choices. Marketing should start here. John's absolutely also right. It's incredibly dense and kind of hard to wade through one of the reasons why I wrote the paper. But we as a community ought to be finding multiple ways of turning this stuff into executable, leverageable thought and principles that we put into everybody from the most junior to the most senior in the organization. So that when you see an ad chock full of you know, individual rational features for a thing. Or when we build products that are kind of rational feature driven, then we start to ask, well, what's going to make the consumer choose it? Because we know it's probably not that stuff. But so much is rational and so much is about triggering that. Have a look at retail. I mean, re- retailers, it's it's price off all the time. Everything drives down to a, a sale price. So how do you break that? How do you break that whole pattern we've got ourselves into but let's be clear price is a shortcut right um, they're not actually doing the maths of oh look at that those beans are only five cents per hundred hundred grams that's not how the brain's working it's going oh cheap cheap's good and you know i'll, I'll turn left because cheap's good. so price is acting not like a rational mathematical thing price is acting like a shortcut in the issue with supermarkets is everybody's trying to use the same shortcut, so that all gets a bit cluttered and crowded somewhat. But 
It's another one of those, if you understand this stuff, you think about pricing very differently. Price is a signal. Sadiq. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, we use price as an excuse a lot of times when in actual fact the reason that you're going to the red store or the green store it has got a lot more to do with what's convenient or what was the last song that you remember. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not always the, the rational reason that you end up going there. And more often than not, it's an emotional reason wrapped up as a rational reason. Right. So for me, it's location. Yeah. Um, that's uh, I'm not sure that's 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 fairly rational though, isn't it? It's convenient. It's a handy segue, right? To the the to, there are models that say, okay, if that is how the brain decides in 95% instinctive system one and 5% rational, there are several models that says, well, how would you affect that choice? One of which the B.J. Fogg model says you need three things to be present. B.J. Fogg's a professor of behavioral economics from Stanford, and he built a model that says if you wish to change people's behavior you need to have three things present. Those three things being motivation. So the the choice you want them to make has to inherently do a job for them, meet a need. Um, the behavior has to be easy because if it's too complicated, I just won't bother. And then if those two things are present, you can then trigger a left or right where the consumer has still got options about, well, that both of these meet my needs and both of these are quite easy. Then you can use a trigger to make you go, well, pick the red one rather than the rather than the green one. So the reason why you go to the supermarket nearest is you have a job to be done, which is, you know, I need food for the family, and therefore the one that's closest is the one that triggers my behaviour. Julie, do you think that with what we're talking about here, that you're doing this sort of stuff almost intuitively anyway? Does this make sense to you and you're doing it, or is it just doesn't have a layer of Kahneman and behavioural economics on it? Look, I think from where I sit, I have to do both jobs. I have to do brand building and I have to do the short term. So I need to meet the needs of the business on the short term, which might be a price promotion, might be a trigger, but what I try and focus on as much as possible is to get that brand locked down so that I can respond, I can firefight when I need to and have that flexibility to respond to the business needs. But you have to do, unfortunately, you know, I'd love to do just brand all the time, but you have to do both and you have to be flexible enough to be able to respond to those business needs when, when they turn around and, and, and act quickly and it's a challenge. But um you know, I think brand, you just have to have some basic frameworks in place that you know work for you that you can commit to and that you can lock away potentially those funds to make sure that they don't get uh, used for other purposes really and, and to protect it. Sadiq, do you think that the that long-term, short-term discussion that we're all having and having now, it's on the rise, d- does it, um, how, does that af- how does that interact with behavioural economics and, and sort of the the emotion, the rational uh, sort of dimensions? I mean, it feels like the short-term piece is easier to do because it falls on the more rational side of things, right? The kind of work that you would do if you're in the short-term mind frame, um, much more rational, much easier to kind of see what will happen when, you know, one plus one equals two. Uh, the, The brand building stuff, I think two things. Yes, it's emotional, but it's also harder to do. And I think when we're under pressure from a marketing perspective, I think whether you're junior or senior or somewhere in between, you go, okay, what am I going to do to get through the next six months? What am I going to do to get through the next 12 months? And therefore, I think we sometimes make decisions which may be not the best decision to make. Um, so I think that's that's one of the, the, the toughest things is kind of the pressure that we're under from a from a marketing perspective. And, and if we believe that our job is 
to change behavior, well, which behavior are we going to do? Are we going to take the long view, uh, which may or may not work, but hopefully does, or are we going to take the short view and kind of live to see another day? KPMG's probably got more cred than than many to be able to talk about this with companies. Do you have these conversations? Are they is there is there interest there? Are you pushing this this sort of line? Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the conversations that we have more than 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 most, I think, is because our focus is very much on the strategic side of things, and because of our focus is very much on um, everything leading up to the delivery of an idea, primarily. Um, we put a lot more time and effort into that side of the conversation. So we can have a conversation around, well, let's model out what it looks like when we just do the short term. Let's have a conversation around what it looks like when we model out the long term. And then we can actually put all of that stuff together because we have the benefit of sometimes not having to create an execution. So I think having the objectivity of we're just going to do the strategic piece, the numbers bit at the beginning, um, the thinking piece, um, frees us up a little bit. And I think that's what a lot of our work is about. John Broome, what do you make of that? And what do you see in how your constituents at the AANA, your members, um, are uh, applying, deploying, using uh, this sort of thinking? So, look, I think um, we're at the beginning of a change. Um, it's There is a realisation that there's a, a recalibration that's, that's required between long and short. Um, I think we're still at the point where the smart minds are uh, trying to work out how to do it without, uh, by bringing on the leadership room with them, um, by still giving reassurance and confidence around being able to deliver the business outcomes that each business requires. But what they, what they are able to do is through a better understanding and access to metrics, which now are available at the front end of the funnel as well as the, the, uh, the back end of the funnel. Front, back, top, bottom, same thing, correct? Throughout the funnel then they are able to bring, you know, the non-marketers in the leadership room along for that journey and give them confidence that by investing, you know, in the long uh, side of the uh, of the funnel, that they can still deliver the business outcome, uh, outcomes that they, they want. It's the beginning. Um, I think there's been a big shift to, to, obviously, to digital spend in the last few years. It's recalibrating back now. So, John Bradshaw, how, how does all what, what we've just talked about, how does that play into... Uh, the work of Byron Sharp and, and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, which is clearly globally renowned now. Yeah, and there's no way I can sum up the work of Byron and Ehrenberg Bass in, in 30 seconds without doing that, a massive d- disservice. Um, but, but actually, in the essence of the long and the short of it, in the long of the long and the short of it, is kind of one of the big um, discoveries of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, um, kind of popularised by Byron Sharp in his book, How Brands Grow. And that's basically the... Consumer shopping behavior follows a very set pattern across all of the categories that we've studied. And that pattern is that there are lots and lots of light consumers, people who probably only buy once in the period, and very, very few people who shop more heavily, who shop um, frequently and more heavily within, within the period. And period could be anything from four weeks if we're in kind of fast-moving consumer goods, probably more like five to ten years if we're in automotive. But irrespective of that, as long as you get the period long enough, we see these naturally recurring patterns. The conclusion from that, therefore, is that brands only grow in the long term when they add consumers to that broad pile. And that you can't recruit a heavy or move a medium into being a heavy. heavy, That's not how consumer behavior works. We don't have that level of influence over consumers' behavior in the long term. 
and therefore penetration, adding more shoppers, consumers, buyers, subscribers, users, whatever we want, to our pool is the only way that brands can And they're typically them. light. And by definition, most of them will be light because that's how our behavior translates. This is why the ads that Suds is talking about need to be emotive, highly branded things that stick in our head for as long as possible because that's all you're trying to do with penetration work is to be remembered in the choice set at some point in the future when the buying moment occurs. And we are deliberately divorcing the advertising from the buying moment when we're doing long-term work as its primary purpose. And therefore, all of this stuff about features and benefits and kind of dramatizing, like, how beautiful the interior of the car is, just to kind of poke at a guest for a second, isn't helpful if we're doing long-term brand work advertising. May well be super helpful if I'm trying to get people to kind of go into market tomorrow and buy a car. So I'm interested in the panel's view of how much of this, if we want to grow in the long term, there has to be a big penetration driving effort and that is going to require significant reach and emotive, famous work in order to turn the brand from a thing into a heuristic in our head that says, oh, I'm looking for a car. Oh, we've been thinking about a Volvo. Because we also know from McKinsey that, 47% of choice in automotive and, and other ca other categories is made before we begin the active search process. I can't remember who said it. Someone someone I was reading earlier said the, the best search engine in the world is still the one in your head. It's the one you use before you use the actual search engine. I mean, really, we forget that in a world where Google exists that actually we've made most of our, half of our decisions certainly before we've even got to the search engine. John Broome, your thoughts on, on, on all that? Because there was a bit there. There was a bit there. And look, I think this work, Byron's work, is uh, being more readily adopted by marketers. It is simpler to understand, simpler to check out, and simpler to execute, um, unlike some of the you know more turgid behavioral economic stuff we were talking about earlier. I'll give you a personal story. When I was uh, marketing director at Kellogg's, and I was given the copy of the little red book, How Brands Grow, I read it uh, in an afternoon. Uh, and then I gave it to my um, uh, customer uh, insights uh, manager and said, check out each of those laws that Byron's talking about against our Nielsen database. Absolutely in line, correct, right? right. And it gave you then great confidence then to take that to the, to the, to the rest of the, of the management and say, look, and what are the implications of this? Well, therefore, reach, you know, uh, one plus reach, for example, is all we need to go after. We need to invest in creativity to create emotional affinity, to create mental availability. We need to invest in, our, in, in distribution to create that physical availability. The two combined uh, uh, add up to saliency. We can measure saliency, you know, we can track it, and we can measure saliency in direct proportion to sales. Hallelujah, everyone went. And that became a very, very simple way of uncluttering the whole profession of marketing. Salip, so, given you're the, the young generation's proxy on this panel... God help uh, us all. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but, but let's say that they're starting to nod off now going, oh, you know, it's like this doesn't, this is not giving me the, the, the hits I'm looking for. Why should they be reading this work? What's important uh, for that younger generation to go... It's just not old people talking to themselves. Well, the, the simplest reason, I think, is when you read it and you take off your marketing hat and you go, does that make sense? Um, as a kind of a human being, as a person that buys stuff or doesn't, as the case may be, you go, actually, it does. Um, and therefore, 
you then go, okay, it, it, it intuitively makes sense. So then the question becomes, how do I apply it? And I think your example of what you did at Kellogg's, John, is a, is a great example of it, right? I think, unfortunately, most people, if they do read it, then go, oh, that's nice. And then they move on to the next thing uh, and don't actually go to the effort to go, okay, can I make this theory um, as, as easy and simple as it is relevant to, the, to my day-to-day? And I think that's the, the simple connection. If people did that, um, first of all, I think that they would find it much more valuable. But but equally, I think, you know, you just have to kind of read it from the perspective of not a marketing person that may or may not have a job at the end of the week, but someone that's actually looking at it and going, you know, these does this narrative um, resonate with me? And I suspect there's a lot of people on the personalization and the technology side that wouldn't be aware of any of this work and still still sort of see the tech side as the deliverable rather than understanding yeah, the concepts here. Absolutely. I mean, you could apply it to a whole range of different areas. Um, and I think that would be my challenge back to anyone that goes, oh, that's not relevant or it's a book, which I'm not even going to read because it's not on a website. Uh, you know, the reality of it is, you know, apply it in whichever way makes sense for you in your life and your job and your work. Um, but see if, it's, see if it works. And if it doesn't, then move on to the next thing. Just to back up what you're saying there, um, Many universities in Australia on their marketing courses are not teaching Byron Sharp's work. Right. Yeah, they're still teaching Kotler. How, how has uh, Sharp usurped Kotler? This is Philip Kotler, right? Yeah. Kotler talks about segmentation, loyalty, you know, and so forth. Sharp's at the opposite end of that continuum. So it's a, it's a complete alternative. And, if, and if, if, you know, some academic institutions are churning out young graduates, you know, without this, you know, alternative then when they come into the workforce, you know, we as marketers have to retrain them. Great points, John. Um, Julie, the criticism that is, and you're a fan of Byron Sharp and Eric Bass, right? You, you, came, you outed yourself a couple of weeks ago on MI3 I saying, did. you know, it's a, it's a big principle. But the criticism of, of Sharp and Ehrenberg Bass is often that it's, it seems to have been framed around a lot of consumer goods, packaged goods work. That's the criticism. I think it's much broader, but it certainly apply. You're applying in, in, in automotive. Absolutely. And, it, and he does, from memory, touch on automotive in a couple of areas of the book. But for me, what I loved about Sharp was building the distinctiveness of a brand. So, you know, cars more or less are the same. There's plenty of good cars out there. How do you build that distinctiveness in your brand that stands differently to the other brands that are in the marketplace? So we've been focusing a lot of effort on making Volvo as distinctive as we can in the marketplace. And I'll give one example, but our voiceover, she's Swedish. It makes sense that she's Swedish, but it's different. It's distinctive. So when people hear Volvo, you know, it's something a little bit different. But again, the influence of Byron Sharp in terms of not differentiation, don't worry about your differentiation, don't worry about how many cup holders you have versus your competitor, worry about building those distinctive features and holding on to those and not being, um, I guess, challenged to change, you know, staying strong, staying the course over the long term and building those assets around around your brand. And you can see right there in Julie's conversation the connection between what Byron's talking about, about distinctiveness, about what Danny Kahneman's talking about, about system one decision making and the need to kind of build the brand into shortcuts and what Les Burnett and Peter Field are talking about in terms of the long and the short of it and how the long works. The interesting thing for me is not can we take a pop at the database in Ehrenberg Bass and is it a bit consumer goods heavy? It is a bit consumer goods heavy. There's more consumer goods data in the world than there is any, anything else. It does have others. 
It's the fact that all of these things connect together and say exactly the same stuff when you just get not even 10,000 feet, kind of 1,000 feet above them. They go, oh, that's all the same stuff. That's how it works. And once you have that acceptance of, oh, that must be how it works, then you can go, oh, well, the work needs to be different then because it doesn't operate in the way I was taught in a Kotlerian type of, you know, very rational choice theory-based approach. We'll move to Lisbonet and Peter Field in a summary in a second. But, Julie, I just want to ask John Broom's point about what universities are teaching. With your, with your teams and when you're hiring and, when, and you've not just at Volvo and previous uh, roles, do you see that come through? Do you see the understanding in the, in, in the, in the marketing graduates or the, or the, the 20-somethings and 30-somethings having, that, having this sort of fuller understanding of, of, of marketing? I don't think so, and that, that's no disrespect. I just don't think the universities are, are training them in what is very much, you know, modern behavioural economics and, and the theory that uh, we're being exposed to. I think even in my case, I've been taught by some legends, you know, really in my practical experience. So being handed a book by a boss and being told to read it, you know, that's a moment where, you know, you're getting trained and you're getting exposed, having conversations with your strategy head at, at your media agency or your creative agency where they're feeding you different pieces of information because we don't always sit down and read a, a book cover to cover. You might have read it in an afternoon, Jonathan. It took me a couple of months to get through Byron Sharp's book. You're, you're much more normal. <laughs> He's weird. So, so it's getting those pieces of the puzzle and, and speaking to people that you really respect, that understand, you know, the opportunities that might exist and maybe how to tackle you know, the business problems you face. But um, I think, you know, my, my big role with my team is to try and share what I learn in the same way that it was passed on to me. Um, and I feel very privileged that I have been, you know, mentored by some some great leaders. What are you doing? Um, what's your, your firm doing with, with universities, uh, Sadiq? Because I see courses that um, universities are pumping out and it is literally, it's sort of like literally digital specialty. There, everyone's in swim lanes and no one's getting this this sort of macro pool view, if you like. Um, do you do you agree, concur with these guys about the, the graduates that are coming through it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, um, once again, no disrespect, but I think, you know, most uh, marketing graduates come out as um, either so general that could have been a degree in anything or they are so highly specialised that they're basically only one tool in the entire tool chest. Um, I think actually re- reflecting on just the university comment and what's coming out of university, I think one of the interesting things is I don't think um, universities in many cases do a great job of making it that interesting to learn these new things. Um, and I don't really know why because I've been to quite a few lecturers for things like the Marketing Academy and so forth where um, people like Mark Ritson, for example, who, who, can, who can captivate a crowd of 22-year-olds for an hour and a half talking about exactly the same stuff that we're talking about here. And so it does make me think that, you know, it's possible um, and it is content that is interesting and relevant if we just put it in front of people in the right way. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I think the idea of getting handed down a book from your boss is, is probably um, helpful but also probably slightly intimidating as well in some instances, right? 
read this, otherwise you're no good to me type thing. So Let's see how your career goes. Yeah, yes. exactly. Well, and especially if it's how brands grow, because it's still on the turgid end of the turgidometer. Yes. It's, it's not yet in light fiction, I have to tell you. Great conversation. And um, just to wrap up, we might just get um, a couple of key thoughts about the, the takeouts here for for ourselves and, and the market around this discussion from each of you, starting with you, John Broom, because you're to my left. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a problem. Look, uh, two things I would say is um, I think we've heard today that uh, every marketer um, has a responsibility for their own continuous learning journey. Um, and I think, you know, some of the concepts that we've talked about today are, you know, really relevant to the way that you can succeed in marketing. Second thing is, I would say, is I'm going to give another plug to Mr. Bradshaw's When Great Man Minds Think Alike. Uh, it's 40 pages of concise reading on everything we've talked about today. Get it from his website at uh, Brand Traction. Yeah, he's done the hard yards. I'll give him that much. Um, Julie, what are, you, what are your, your couple of key thoughts? Uh, firstly, I think we need to diagnose the problem and I think that was touched on and, and that's incredibly important. Um, whilst, you know, meeting the needs of the business on the short term, we really need to bring everyone along the journey and and paint them a picture of, of the value of investing in brand over the long term and making sure we have a framework where, you know, certain things are locked down, but there's a bit of freedom for magic to occur and for a little bit of creative thinking because we don't want to all be very rational, very features and, and benefits orientated. Sadeep. Uh, three things for me. The first is I think it's very important that as intelligent as we are and can become in the world of marketing, that we remain human first and foremost and think about it from the perspective of, you know, how would a normal person look at this? Uh, secondly, I think rigor in strategy is something that has fallen by the wayside and I think it needs to be reinvested in. And then finally, not all creative work um, is created equal, which is uh, kind of obvious, but I think great creative work takes time and effort and a lot of heartache. And I think it's important to kind of think about that, particularly when you're thinking about the, uh, the long of the long and the short of it. And the proxy for the young generation is for you. You're the proxy. What do you say to the, what do you say to the emerging talent? Read some books. Love it. John Bradshaw. Yeah, three thoughts from me. Um, first and foremost, make sure right across the marketing department you've got this understanding of how human beings make decisions and test everything you do against the 95%, 5% test. Am I really talking to the lizard brain or, or not? Second thing, when you look at the brand plan, try and segment the brand plan into three buckets. What am I doing to drive motivation to get people to want my product? What am I doing to drive ease? How am I making my thing easier to get hold of and to use? And what am I doing with triggers? What am I doing to get them to pick my one versus their one? To Julie's point, given that differentiation probably doesn't exist um, in the minds of consumers anyway. And the third thing is, go back to Les and Peter's work. Les Bennett, Peter Field. Les yep. Bennett, look at the split between those three things and try and get yourself 60% plus into longer-term penetration building, attraction of new users, and 40% making sure you hit your targets and deliver your numbers this quarter. Otherwise, you won't have a job. Listen, we this is part one, by the way. Part two will be the same discussion, but in and around media and advertising and, and the lead, leading thinking uh, and some of the work that's showing what works, what's effective. Stand by for part two. John Broom, Julie Sadeep, John Bradshaw. Thank you. Great conversation. And uh, next time. See you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. 
For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.